the legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar for the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Uneffing the Republic. I want to tell you about a show that I think you will really enjoy. Before you judge it by the name, which is not safe for work, give it a listen because you won't be disappointed. The show is Uneffing the Republic, or UnFTR for short. It's a smart, funny, and really well produced show the New York Times called one of the top podcasts to listen to in the post Trump era. UnFTR offers a thorough analysis of socioeconomic and political issues with an appropriate level of profanity given the subject matter. They cover everything from the economics of racism and mass incarceration to indigenous rights and climate change. And they hate, I mean, really hate Milton Friedman. I also love that UnFTR is not only listener supported through memberships, but it's also funded through a unique partnership with a native coffee roasting company in an effort to support indigenous economic development. Visit unftr.com or search unftr on your podcast. You can also sign up for the Uneffing the Republic newsletter for free at unftr.substack.com. So check out Uneffing the Republic at unftr.com. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. This week, I am talking to Andrew Zimmern, best known as the host of Bizarre Foods, but also the brains behind multiple restaurants, a professor at Babson College, the host of a new show called Family Dinner, and the anchor of a special series for MSNBC called What's Eating America. He is one of the most generous and articulate people I know, and he happens to be sober, celebrating 21 years this year. If you're curious about long-term sobriety, I want you to stay tuned for the second half of the conversation, where he and I talk about some of the struggles that come after you've basically got a handle on the not drinking part of recovery. But before that, we have a long conversation about food, which means it's also about the pandemic, politics, policy, intersectionality, and the price of a chicken dinner. Andrew Zimmern, coming right up. Andrew, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So uh, for those uh, who aren't, you know, in the biz, um, they probably don't know this, but a thing that happens a lot when you're doing radio interviews, especially is when they do a soundtrack, they ask you, what did you have for breakfast? Yeah. And I've always wondered, do other people have interesting answers to that question? So I want to ask you, Andrew, what did you have for breakfast? I had a, a very typical breakfast for me, uh, which is a an iced coffee, even in the wintertime. And it's usually the leftover coffee from the night before. And then about an hour after I've been up and I'm actually like my metabolism is going and the dog is taken care of and all that stuff is done. I have a half a bagel and smoked salmon, tomato, onion and scallion cream cheese. Is that like that's, typical? That's two or three. You know, I do that two or three times a week. I, I there's something about. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Russ and Daughters 
human being. Five gener- we know five generations of Zimmerns uh, knew, well, four generations have eaten at Russ and Daughters. <laughs> we know that a fifth generation, which would be my grandmother's dad, worked in a, a factory around the corner and lived down the street. So I know he would have walked by there and not been able to afford to go in. So we know he was aware of it, or maybe he bought something at holiday time. That's what I'm banking on. So it's either four or five generations have eaten there and our families have been friendly throughout the years. And I just have something, if you are what you eat, I'm 25% Russ and daughter smoke fish. So I, I, I just, yeah, that's two or three times a week. The rest of the time it's leftover. I go Japanese breakfast, which means I have, a little bit of leftover salad, some pickle, a little this, a little that, a little bit of protein, and I'm out the door. I rarely do what people consider American breakfast, eggs, pancakes, French toast, bacon, rarely. Although, as I'm sure you know, the American breakfast is only recently the American breakfast. That is correct. Yes. And I don't uh, even know if we, do we refer to it as the American breakfast or is it still referred to as like the Denny's home run or whatever? I, I just don't know. I think most Americans just call it breakfast. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I don't that's ever. that's what kind of cultural chauvinists we are. It's yeah, just. Well, breakfast. I don't eat oatmeal. I mean, you know, <laughs> breakfast is a very personal thing. It's also a meal that used to be irrelevant to me for so many years. And now I know from a health standpoint if I eat breakfast, I eat less during the day. I feel better when I'm at work. I mean, I really have to train myself to do it because for so many years I did. So I think that this answer turned out to be even more interesting than I thought it would be because it reveals a couple things or it segues into a couple things. Um, one is something that's maybe an overarching theme of, of your career, which is the way that food ties us into history and culture and relationships, mm-hmm. even something like a bagel. Right. That everything we eat has a history. Everything we eat has a connection to the culture around us. There is no such thing as like a value neutral food. That is that is correct. And then tradition and routine. Because the first thing I actually thought about asking you, besides breakfast, was about how the pandemic has changed you. You're a traveler, right? Uh, I read an interview from a while back that said you only spent about a third of your time at home. Yes. I imagine that's changed. It has. And, and for the better, I, I, you know, when every, all my friends, you know, I, I came back, I actually had done, I guess, February of 2020, I had just come back from Los Angeles end of February Los Angeles was shut down. It was a ghost town. I could not believe I was staying at the same hotel I always stay in. I like it because I can sort of walk around and stuff and and feel like I'm in a city and all the lo- my favorite restaurants were shut. I mean, it was it was scary. It it felt, you know, in Minnesota where I live, I'm not in a downtown. I'm not in a, a city. I live in a suburb. So things were sort of normalized. And I went to Los Angeles and it was closed. And I was doing the, I went there because I was doing the Bill Maher show. And then I flew home and everything was shuttering and Minnesota was closing down. And, you know, Governor Walls called me and said, look, we're going to make this announcement in a couple of days. I, you know, I want you there to represent the food community. I'm like, sure. And the phone calls started coming in from my friends. 
work is shutting down. Oh my God, I can't be with my family for this. Everyone was freaking out. Not about the, the, the thing they were freaking out about the most was staying at home. Mm. How do I cook? How do I do, you know, and that's what spurred all these, you know, the empty shelves on the rest of the kind of thing. At my house, I was just like mazel tov. I mean, I was like, this is, I have all these work trips canceled. I get to lie on my couch. I was, as someone who traveled too much, I actually welcomed the downtime. Obviously, within a couple of days, uh, I became highly, highly more uh, agitated about the, the real world problems that we were faced with. But for my own schedule and my own peace of mind, I was just like, this is the greatest thing that, that could happen to me from a slow down. People have told me my whole life, slow down, don't travel as much, time to connect with people, catch up with friends and go like all of these uh, positive side effects uh, that others were complaining about. I was actually okay with if not pleased with and you know then i was sitting in the same problems with everyone else but for a brief moment there i was really excited about it and overall i do actually think it changed me and my behavior for the positive i'm not going back to doing those schedules ever again i'm glad that you mentioned finding some gifts uh in the collective trauma we've experienced yeah. as the pandemic because we the food industry, uh, mainly it's been talked about as having um, enormous negative impact. The pandemic has had enormous negative impact. And I do want to go over that. But if in the back of your mind, you could think about what some of the positive things. Oh, uh, it's not back of my mind. There's many positive oh, things. Okay. Do you, which one do you want to do first then? Good news or bad news? Well, I mean, let's just recap the bad news briefly right. just to sort of set the table. Bad pun. Um but the, the food industry as a whole, you know, got completely kneecapped. Um, and I say food industry, I, I'm including supply chain. Anywhere food touches uh, a human being has, was, was absolutely uh, traumatized and tangled um, from, you know, factory farms to food factories to production facilities to how we move food around the country to how, you know, the, the culinary racism and almost genocidal way in which food is treated. And I'm talking about hunger and food waste uh, here. Um, we asked restaurants to be open and, and they tried to, and then they pivoted and then they were told to close. Then they were told they could open again and they were told to close. And, you know, the independent restaurant community went into huge debt. 35% of them have closed. I think if the restaurant relief uh, uh, fund is not a uh, restaurant revitalization fund from the applied, well, administered by the SBA is not refilled. I think we're going to lose another 10, 15% of restaurants who have just taken on so much debt uh, during, uh, you know, the last 19, 20 months. I think it's we're in for a big shock. And restaurants have changed the way they've done things. There are very famous restaurants that are now open five days instead of seven, or not open at all, and only do it to the public, but only doing delivery and uh, pickup service. And you know, there's there's just been all of these horror stories uh, that we're all well aware of Let's if we read newspapers and books. However, there is a really fantastic upside. Uh, to this, one of the biggest upsides is that, as as awful as it is to say, I think we had too many restaurants and not enough customers. 
nationwide. And, maybe, and I think, or, or wait, 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 were maybe some of the restaurants in the wrong place was maybe the distribution of restaurants a problem without a doubt, without yeah. going into heavy detail. Uh, but I, you know, I, I, I think there was a natural attrition there uh, that occurred. And, and I mean, that's so cold to say, uh, but it's I, I think it's honestly the truth. And and people don't like to think about that with restaurants that we're so personally attached to. Um, and it hurts me to say it, but I think it's, I think it's the truth. It's a small percentage, but I think it's the truth. In closing, in facing these challenges, a lot of restaurateurs that had never considered the value propositions of their own revenue models um, were forced to reconsider them and change them. And I think that's the biggest uh, plus that I see coming out uh, of this. Um, well, one of two big pluses, the other one being actually changing the way we eat and the way we serve food, but I'll get to that in a second. Restaurant economies have always been horrifically brittle over the last 50 years, seven, eight, 9% average money to the bottom line. That's not sustainable when some of those profit dollars have to be put in to keep the business up and to take care of your employees the right way. So we have to increase that that bottom line to a healthier number, let's just say to 20%, okay? In order to do that, we have to do many, many things. We also have to, you know, like change the price of food, change how we're serving, change other ways to ring the cash register. And those challenges, restaurant people are the most creative people on planet earth. I, I love food people more than any other people in the world. And so many of them have risen to the challenge in increased ways to, uh, uh, you know, make money that isn't between 11 a.m. and 1.30 p.m. and 6 and 10 p.m., right? Can we talk a, a little bit about how the restaurant business structure worked out to be so brittle sure. and creating some kind of uh, unequal structures and who how people work there and who works there and how they sure. get paid, right? Sure. Can they, explain they tried how, that, to make how that is? Yeah, over the last, it's very simple. Over the last 40 or 50 years, they kept making cheap food cheaper. And when you do that, uh, you the only way to make that, if you're going to do that and you're going to make less and less money off the sale of food itself, you have to make up for it in a couple of different ways. One, prioritize alcohol. People will pay $25 for a drink uh, at restaurants and they will not pay $25 for a roast half chicken. That's just that, that's just the, the simple math. It's It's... It's shocking to me, but it's true. Uh, then restaurateurs have to make up the dollars in other ways. So we'd start to pay, uh, you know, people off the books to take jobs in kitchens uh, at, you know, part-time or full-time that we consider, quote-unquote, less worthy. And you begin to exacerbate over the last two or three generations this distance between the front and the back of the kitchen. The front of the house and back of the house, right? So this is the the common picture of restaurants, uh, a cliche, but not a myth. And that is, you know, people of color in the back cooking your food at $15, $16, $17 an hour, uh, some making less washing dishes, um, servers out in front making $100 a night in tips, um, uh, hosts and hostesses at the front desk answering phones and seating people who are all very good looking and well dressed and being paid twenty dollars an hour. Bartender, you know, you you get the picture here. And, and, and sorry, 
No, no, no. We just wind up with this, you know, bifurcated community in a in an industry where we're supposed to be one big team, and it's it's often uh, been shocking to me as someone who is an entrepreneur, and you know, I teach entrepreneurship at Babson College, and I and I and I try to read voraciously about the subject and learn from other people who are experts. I've never had an original idea in my whole life. I'm more of a synthesizer uh, and connector. Um, but it, it's exactly, it's going about it, it's going about it backwards. You know, one of my favorite restaurateurs, uh, Michael Astoria, who owns Ann Pizza, uh, one of the fastest growing uh, restaurant groups in the country, um, has made incredible uh, open book uh, displays in his social media of what he pays his employees and why to show you how you can grow and be more profitable by actually taking care of the people that work for you. Now we do that here in in our businesses, and I and we've grown and made more money. You've got to invest in your people. You have to invest in your people. Restaurants can't be temporary or illusory. I love talking about food in part because it get back it always gets back to my other passion, which is politics, right? Mm. Always, 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 always. Yep. And, and it's political. I, it is political. And you mentioned this offhandedly, but I, I love trying to drive home for people that this thing we think of as like just a pleasant thing to go do, right? It's just a we'll go out to eat, right? Um has like a, this history of you know, oppression and inequality um, that's structurally built into it. Among other things, there's subsidy, like the food is so cheap because of government actions, right? Like we, we have gotten used to cheap food. This well, idea- let me interrupt you there and just signpost for the audience. You know, we, we, we have cheap, uh, certain types of cheap food made cheaper via subsidies because we're subsidizing giant freight to uh, farm to freighter uh, farms that are harvesting things like cotton and corn and oats and soybeans and things like that. Uh, Food that human beings eat is, is qualified. You know, this is by law as specialty crops. Um, They have to be harvested by hand, not machine. There's no machine that'll pick a tomato or a pear or a cucumber. They, they just don't exist. Um, and, you know, I, I would add on to that list, you know, I- immigration, you know, uh, uh, immigration reform is a can that's been kicked down the road, I think, by the last six presidents, seven presidents uh, and counting. Um, it, it, you know, if we actually had real immigration reform in this country, it would be so beneficial to our national security, safety on our borders uh, and would actually create a food system, which, by the way, just independent restaurants alone is 5% of GDP. Add in all the farms and hotels and tourism and all that, and you're at about 19, 22% of GDP, depending on whose numbers you use. This is a massive impact on our national uh, economic uh, front. And it affects, I mean, food is a global and national security issue. If you take away bread and rice, that is the stuff that revolutions are made of. I, I would I would also point out that just to finish my last point about the two silos that have forced people to change the industry. The other one is actually serving healthier, better food for you. So in America, we always had 14 ounces of protein as the center of the plate, giant potato, and a giant wedge of broccoli, and then you could help yourself to the super salad bar. You know, that was like, that was a meal. Now we're realizing we have to eat it in a much more modern way. 
four or five ounces of protein, animal protein tops, if you're going to have it at all. There are other ways to get protein, lots of beans and farinaceous foods and things like that. So you see a lot of restaurants opening these days that are putting an emphasis uh, on that and are having a more uh, widely varied amount of foods on the plate. Not only is it better for us, but it allows prices to come down because beans and grains and, and things like that and smaller amounts of protein mean the kitchen is spending less. Their profit margins can go up. You want a 16-ounce steak? Go to a premium steakhouse or cook it at home. I just don't want to see steak on any other menu except in a premium steakhouse, for example, right? I mean, it just it just kills your bottom line. And I think that we are we're learning how to treat our our employees better. Um, we may look back at the 2020s as a golden age of restaurants 20 years from now if we are able to learn how to take care of our people better and actually do it. We can we can now drill down a bit on what you're talking about as far as restaurants learning how to create systems that allow them to take care of their people better. Mm-hmm. It sounded like you were talking a little bit about like uh, just multiple revenue streams, like not just serving breakfast, lunch, dinner, or whatever. Yep. You want to talk a little bit more about that? Well, sure. There's uh, you know I, I love recent examples. There's uh, Anna Ahmed, a wonderful restaurateur here in the Twin Cities, has a restaurant called Lat Forty uh, Lat Fourteen Lat Forty One. I always get it uh, wrong. Uh, my apologies if she's listening, um, but she's opened a second restaurant just last week called Kaluna. And so it's a restaurant and it's open for lunch and dinner, but there's also a store. So you can buy like the, the plates and bowls and things like that and certain cooking utensils uh, from the world in which of Southeast Asia, from which she draws her culinary inspiration. And uh, it, that space will also allow her to hold classes and do other things and do uh, paid for virtual events and private parties and stuff like that. So she is now adding, uh, I'll just pick a number, 7% uh, of revenue, gross revenue to her bottom line that wasn't there before, right? And that could be the difference between uh, a healthy internal sustainable economy for her restaurant group or one that isn't. And, and I'm sure her decision-making was driven in large part by trying to make her, her own restaurant company uh, more sustainable financially. Um, it's, it's something that if you can't do it, and you're, it's going to take too much time to implement. In some cases, you're betting off, better off closing doors. Um, I'm involved in a whole slew of restaurants uh, around the country, but mostly here in the Twin Cities. Um, and several we we closed just because we 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 because of the food, the location, the neighborhood, the way it's set up, what was being served. We could not make it. You know, we'd invest so much money trying to make it uh, work that it would take us 10 years to get back to zero. And that's just it's better off to close the doors and start over. Um, in other ones, we changed our systems radically and, and menus. And uh, I think, you know, but we changed the two biggest things in restaurants that have been changing is the food itself and how we treat the people. And, you know, that that's things like, you know, doing our own paid medical leave, having insurance available for everyone, Offering a true living wage, not not a false living wage that forces people to work two jobs, uh, but an actual true living wage. Um, Getting rid of some of the old ways of thinking. There was a wonderful article I saw. I forget where it was 
Um, but it was talking about, uh, you know, customers' viewpoints of seeing servers or cooks sitting. Mm. Well, you know, you're working a, 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 an eight, nine, 10, 12 hour shift. You're darn right. You need to have time <laughs> to sit, right? Everyone should be allowed breaks. But the, 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 mentally, as a, as a customer, if you're in a restaurant and you see uh, employees lounging at the water cooler in a restaurant, you think to yourself, oh, they should be doing something. If you walked into Dunder Mifflin and you saw people at the water cooler talking, you would think to yourself, oh, great, they're connecting. Mm-hmm. They're, they're improving their relationships. That's great. It makes them more productive. Why isn't that true in a restaurant, right? So we, we have to remake our, our, our restaurant system. I think that's happening as we speak. I think people are looking at national leaders and saying, what can I learn from those folks? You know, with friends like these is brought to you by seed. You've heard of probiotics, but you may not know that to be effective, a probiotic must survive the trip to your gut. Seeds via cap delivery technology is engineered to survive stomach acid, bile salts, and enzymes to ensure a hundred percent delivery to the colon and seed works for sure. It will do the thing that your gut needs to get done. What I love about it is it doesn't look like something for tum-tum related issues. The packaging looks like high-end cosmetics. You can leave it out on your bathroom counter and no one but the snoopiest visitors will have any idea you've got tummy issues. Not all probiotics are created equal. What is Seed's Daily Symbiotic? It's a broad spectrum, two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic. It's a unique formulation of 24 distinct probiotic strains in scientifically studied dosages. It has systemic benefits beyond the gut, and it's a proprietarily engineered two-in-one capsule that protects probiotics through digestion to ensure delivery to the colon. But what does the daily symbiotic do for you? It supports benefits in and beyond the gut, including GI function, skin health, heart health, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, and micronutrient synthesis of vitamins B9 and B12. Do you need to you know, get things moving, ease bloating? Many see improvements in digestion within just 24 to 48 hours of taking seed. Start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com slash friends and use code friends to redeem 20% off your first month of seeds daily symbiotic. That's seed.com slash friends and use code friends. With friends like these is brought to you by BetterHelp. I hope I'm not ruining anything by bringing up the holidays. They are right around the corner, and it's already hard to avoid reminders. And once again, there are some extra reasons the thought of the holidays might be getting you down as well. But you don't have to figure things out on your own. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment and begin communicating in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room and anything you share is confidential. 
BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. The service is accessible worldwide. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp can connect you with licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, or trauma, areas of expertise that may not be available in your area. You can check out the testimonials posted daily to their site. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp. They are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash friends. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, better, H-E-L-P.com slash friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Joybird. As with a lot of folks, the pandemic brought on some huge changes to my life, and a lot of those changes are scary. But one change that I've completely embraced and that gives me comfort and not anxiety is living alone in a house that is furnished for me and me alone and the dog. When I get worked up about the future, I look around and I remember all the work that got me this far, which means I can do whatever is ahead of me too. And it, it seems a little weird that a couch can be an emotional touchstone, but making a space that gives you joy and security is more important than ever. Joybird offers modern, customizable furniture for every space available in a variety of vibrant, durable fabric options. That couch, I designed it especially for me and the dog. It's a sectional with a chaise, and some people have asked if I'm planning on hosting because the couch is big, but no. I got an enormous couch just for me and the dog. I can sprawl. The dog can sprawl. I can spread out the whole Sunday New York Times. My advice to you, think about what you really use your couch for and design around that. Joybird lets you choose from over 18,000 customization options and browse curated collections to find the perfect piece for your one-of-a-kind style. Unsure where to start? Joybird design specialists are standing by to make your vision a reality for free. Quality craftsmanship, stain and scratch resistant fabrics, a limited lifetime warranty. Joybird furniture can handle anything your family throws at it. Literally. Joybird stands by its quality and craftsmanship. If it's not everything you hoped for, send it back. Create a space that brings you joy with Joybird. Visit joybird.com slash friends and get 30% off your purchase. That's 30% off at joybird.com slash friends. People listening right now are probably wondering when this turned into an entrepreneurship and business uh, podcast. But um, <laughs> but I, I think, number one, this is all really important because it's political. And number two, you just brought up something that I think is a subject we cover more traditionally on this podcast, which is changing the way you, you think about the world. Like you as a listener, me as a person, how can I change the way I think about the world? How can I change my actions to help make it a better place? Because it turns out there are, there, are kind, there are lots of tiny things that are just about shifting your worldview. And that's one of them, right? Just to think differently about who the people are that bring, it, that bring us our food. Mm -hmm. Because I wanted to ask you what you think sort of the psychological ramifications in a good way, or not necessarily good, but what the psychological ramifications are for eaters of food, which we all are, but let's just call them consumers, the consumer side. Mm -hmm. uh, and when it comes to the food industry, I mean, there's an argument that people have come to realize maybe we should be a little more thoughtful about our food than we were pre-pandemic. 
but we know, better we, be. Yeah. We, we, we better be or it's going to disappear. And we need to put the, you know, and, and, and I'm not purposely bringing it back to politics, but we need to put oh, the power of law. I mean, feel free. <laughs> we need to put the power of laws actually behind some of these ways of, of thinking. That means minimum wage, right? And reorienting that. Uh, a lot of the state and, and municipal tip credit uh, mm-hmm. issues that are on the table. There are so many different things that we need to do to actually make a fair and unbiased uh, uh, framework around which for restaurants uh, to operate. For too long, restaurants have been able to sort of operate in the shadows in ways that have been extremely unhealthy. It's like letting a, a child who's too young play for too many decades in the dark on its own. The vast majority of restaurateurs are hardworking people that just want to feed folks. And they're in it because they love seeing what happens when someone is like smiling at their table, taking the first bite. Okay, that's the vast majority. There are a lot of bad players out there taking advantage of the system and using it as a way simply to make money. That's great. I'm all for making money, but we have to have level playing fields here. We have to address some of these issues around food production, our animal raising. Uh, You know, we have to have uh, the ability for restaurants to offer paid medical leave insurance and actually professionalize this environment. Independent restaurants alone make up 5% of GDP. We can't ignore the laws that are need to protect those people and those businesses. It's just an absolute mind boggler to me. It, 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 remember, restaurants are a very special community. It's made up most well. It's, the number one place for single moms and dads to work, the number one place for returning citizens, people coming out of jails and institutions, uh, number one or two place, depending on who you listen to, for uh, new Americans, that includes legal and illegal. I mean, I could keep going, oh, it's the new stat, number one place for last-time job seekers. It's traditionally been the number one place for first-time job seekers, which it is. Um, kids putting themselves through college, first job after college, way to supplement income, bartender, wait tables a couple nights a week. But now people in their later years are coming into restaurants uh, because of the need to supplement income. So it's a very special community. We don't take care of those people. They will wind up on, uh, on unemployment or in other straits where we're going to have to pay even more in, uh, out of the government doles to support them. So it's in our best interest financially to take care of them before it becomes a problem. You know, it's, it's like changing the, the food that's eaten. We, you know, we spend a trillion, uh, $1.5 trillion a year on the big four food-related diseases. If we could actually change our food system and prioritize getting healthy uh, food on the tables of those that need it and not just allow food stamp programs to, by a vast majority, purchase foods on the inside of the supermarket as opposed to the perimeter where the fresher, healthier foods are. Uh, if we could just give people complete leeway to that, if we could have a national program uh, for school lunch where everyone is given a free lunch, I mean, all of these things would create healthier human beings. We would save hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of, do- of dollars. I mean, it is to me, the issues are, are, it is political issue after political issue after political issue that would help us, because I see everything through the same lens you do. I mean, it's, it's ultimately the only way to give something teeth. And 
we have an industry that we need to help. We desperately need to help them, which is why, you know, the, the Biden's uh, programs, I, I hate to say build back better because I don't think it describes things. I'm one of those people who wants to talk about it in terms of, you know, national sick leave and maternity leave <laughs> and all the things that actually will be achieved right. for human beings that they want. Um, but all this applies to the small businesses that are restaurants. Restaurants are Main Street America, and we have to support them. The, the food piece from a health and wellness standpoint, to me, is the most fascinating, undiscussed part uh, of this. We know that food RX works, right? That's where for diabetics, instead of giving them thousands of dollars a month in uh, medicine uh, that only costs $100 a month in other countries, don't get me started, uh, but you know, thousands of dollars a month here, why not help them with uh, food and exercise? right? Which all doctors say diabetes, especially type two, if caught early enough, food and exercise can take the place of, of a vast percentage of the medicine that's involved. And this has been proven. We've had test cases in cities. Uh, food RX is, you know, got $40 million from the government under Obama as an experiment. Worked like a charm. We detailed Food RX in a community down in Texas in What's Eating America, my MSNBC series. It works and it actually saves us money. Why we, why we have such a tough time embracing these is I. You know, oh, I, I mean, you've I got talked some. about endlessly forever. So <laughs> I was going to say, I've got some white supremacy for you, some patriarchy. Yeah. Well, well, you know, you did, you, you know, we, I did mention culinary racism and, and culinary genocide at the at the top of the show. And I mean, I, the I, people, you mentioned how many women and how many people of color work in these industries, right? I mean, it's that is not correct. an accident. It's a, it's a vicious cycle. It, like it we is, don't care about those places where those people right. work. That's right, and it started four hundred and two years ago. Yeah. You know, this is this is a, you know, uh, I mean, we call it the service industry, which in part also <laughs> just bothers me. I don't know. I yes. mean, it, I it, I know it's a descriptive term and I know it isn't meant to, to carry the weight of the well, 500 words years. Ma words but... <laughs> matter. We have to we have to call it the, the hospitality industry. Yes, we have to better. call it, you know, we can't that aisle in the supermarket. You know, we can call it the international aisle, which some have. We've got to stop calling it the ethnic aisle. We stop. We have to stop referring to uh, restaurants that serve foods uh, from different countries around the world as as holes in the wall, mom and pop, postage stamp restaurant. You know, it, it's all this implicit idea that Mexican food has to be cheap and Chinese food has to be cheap and Guatemalan food has to be cheap. No, it doesn't. There's no food that's cheap. It's, it's meat and grain and potatoes and vegetables, and they all cost money. The same prices, by the way, that the French restaurant next door yeah. is paying from the same suppliers. And if so I would speculate just a little bit more about why it is that we, these inequities persist. I, I think it also has to do with the way that we, that cheapness of food, which doesn't necessarily miss, even mean a dollar amount, but the way that food is just fuel for us in so many ways, like the way that it, it's the monoculturization of food, like all food is kind of alike, like all food, we, we, we expect conformity in our food. Like we don't value uniqueness in food. We don't value a new flavor necessarily. We want it to taste like something else that's gone before. So there's this whole industry that's based on kind of just the low. I mean, I guess you could say all capitalism is based on the lowest common denominator. But <laughs> but I, I think there's something especially tragic about the about the food industry being a place that is making its 
dumbing us down a little bit. You well, know? Of course it is. And what's happened is, is that to in, because we're driving that, that balloon into the, that Zeppelin into the ground, you know, I've, I've, the Hindenburg is always in my head when I think of this, because we're doing that, we have created a system. Let's just, let's just take chickens, for example, you know, and 70 years ago, they were all roaming free. And then someone realized they could double production by putting them in boxes. And then they got sick. So we said, okay, let's pump them full of medicine. And we just, we wind up with a very inexpensive chicken that's raised under horrific conditions that has very little nutritional value. That's dangerous for some people to eat because of what's pumped into it. uh, That's flavorless. Okay. To your point about that, that pursuit of, pursuit of of uh mediocrity right but it's at the right price Mm -hmm. and it's the same thing in the beef industry and and for anyone listening who disagrees with me i would just ask you to go into your supermarket and stare i'm just talking about a regular supermarket not a fancy one not not citarellas out in east hampton long island right i'm just talking about a local regular supermarket go in there and you look at the beef in cuts all single portion they're all oversized based on what nutritionists would tell you to eat look at the chicken take a look at the dollars per pound and then just go start googling and see Mm. how much meat (laughs) cost five years ago right don't google about the conditions unless no just just look at the prices (laughs) because i will tell you i will tell you we have we have created, we've trained consumers to look for a certain size of protein at a certain price. And gosh forbid we go above it. Tracy Desjardins, one of the great chefs in America who owned a couple of restaurants in San Francisco. I was talking to her just pre-COVID uh, in a lecture series I was uh, sponsoring and hosting at CIA at Copia. And uh, she was closing uh, Jardinier, her signature fancy restaurant. And I asked her why. And she said, I can't take care of my employees because uh, we're not making enough money. And I asked her to uh, expand on that. And she said, well, you know, we were at, you know, 9, 10% profit margin, which was high for us. Uh, but I knew I needed to spend, I needed to make about 3% more off of the average check to offer the right benefits and the right wages that I believe my employees deserved. So she put a service charge on 3%. Ooh. would be added to every bill. Now that's, if you spend a hundred dollars, that's $3 doesn't, I don't think that deters anyone from going to Jardinier, which by the way, was not an inexpensive little restaurant to begin with. And her customers went bonkers, right? I bet they're all good San Francisco liberals too. That's right. Exactly. This is, I mean, this is the irony, great irony. Uh, One of the most liberal cities in America, if not the most liberal. And uh, so then she raised the prices. She wanted to do a little experiment. Now, Jardinier was famous, like Zuni in the same city, famous for its roast chicken, right? She made a dynamite roast chicken. So I asked her, I said, 25 years ago when Jardinier opened, what was the chicken? She said, oh, it was, you know, whatever, $20 for the plate. I said, what is it now? She said, $23. And I said, okay, so your chicken. And she said, that's the least expensive item on the entrees at dinner. And I, and, and I asked her and she knew where I was going. This. She just interrupted me. And she said, you know, 
I'm, I was only able to raise my price of chicken on the menu 15% over 25 years, but all of my costs went up 800% in rent, 900% in pay. I mean, just, just went on and on and on with these massive increased numbers. The, the, the people were easier. They didn't look, they didn't care if the $120 bottle of wine was 140 bucks, but they sure did care if that chicken price went up because for some reason, not everyone is a vintner, but everyone walks into a supermarket, looks at the price of chicken. They forget what goes in to the chicken that went onto Tracy's plates. And I think that restaurateurs, and this is the scary part because some people have to leap first, right? I mean, there's gotta be someone who says I leapt and it's safe down here in the water. We need to have restaurateurs. My wish is that people start charging what, it, what the plate actually costs to put out there, right? Which would mean if they want to stay in a certain window, they have to uh, put less meat on their plate, more beans and farinaceous foods, serve food a different way. And I think those are going to be- Smaller menus. Yeah. Those are going to be better places. I mean- yeah. You know, I, I, I don't think it's going to be as dark a future as Blade Runner, but I do think we're going to have, you know, in that amazing movie in the future. With some 20, interesting food choices. 2070, everything looked like, uh, you know, uh, a, a neighborhood in, in Tokyo that I eat in a lot where everything is six seats at a counter and two tables inside and they serve seven items on the menu. And most of them are single subject restaurants. You go to a tempura place for tempura and a sukiyaki place for sukiyaki. I think we're going to have, we're already seeing more of that here in America, right? You're already seeing every chef in America. I mean, Wiley Dufresne just opened a pizza restaurant. Every great chef has just opened a pizza restaurant because it's inexpensive and you could be creative with it. I think we'll start to see a rebound back. But I do think we're we're witnessing the rebranding of American food culture in restaurants right now. We're like we're living in it. So it's hard to analyze it because it's right under our feet. But in a few years, I think we'll be able to have some really good perspective on it. I see it happening all around us. Because I'm so aware and you've been talking about big systemic changes and systemic changes are how we make real change, right? Like climate uh, policy shouldn't be about recycling, right? Climate policy should be about big companies doing what they do. Mm -hmm. But there is a, a big part of this change that you're talking about that does depend on consumers. It's like cultural. That's the toughest part. Yeah. It is. The, and, and we talk about this at conferences I go to. How, we just did it at the Milken Institute. I was on a I was on a panel with, with Questlove and Nate Mook uh, and a couple other folks. And it was it was it was amazing how we got to this point where there is a responsibility of the consumer to which means that to, to actually change the way in which they eat, dine out, spend and live. And that mm -hmm. is a cultural change. And the only thing that to me, I, I said, uh, you're familiar with this way of thinking. You're very public about it. You know, uh, things like uh, fear and tragedy are real movers when it comes to change, when I'm fat, dumb, and happy, I kind of try to stand still, you know, I just want to <laughs> enjoy it. When, when there is danger, I'm ready to make a change. And people, I think, need to understand. I mean, it's very timely right now as we are having this conversation uh, with what's going on overseas with the climate conference. I mean, there we are looking at real danger and real, real massive global problems when it comes to weather and food, and they are interrelated. Uh, 
tremendously more interrelated, I think, than people even realize. Um, and we have to, as a society, start to make real substantive changes. Um, I know this sounds crazy coming from a food guy, um, but we have decided we're eating out half as much. Um, we're focusing on, on different types of food in our home. And it's, it's just become a very, very necessary part of life because I can't be talking about this one way uh, and, and living it another. And it's really, really hard. It's really, really hard. Uh, the phrase that I'm most familiar with from that place, those rooms that we both go to, um, is people don't change unless they're uncomfortable enough to change. Mm -hmm. right? You have to wait till you get uh, the discomfort is, is greater than the fear of change. That's right. right. And speaking of those rooms, we're going to take yes. a break and then come back and, and talk about some, some steps that people take sometimes. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Best Fiends. Best Fiends is one of the only games I play. I don't like looking for new games. And with Best Fiends, I don't have to. It's a great match three style game and it never gets old ever. With Best Fiends, you play through an actual storyline complete with good guys, the fiends, and the not-so-good guys, the slugs. Your fiends start out as baby versions of their future selves. The more you play, the more fiends join your team and the more powerful they become, helping you solve increasingly challenging puzzles as you progress through the game. It's an action-packed adventure and a brain-boosting puzzle game all rolled into one. And with new content added all the time, you are never bored. Best Fiends has literally thousands of levels with more added all the time. Download Best Fiends for free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends, but without the R, Best Fiends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Helix. I have a guest room for the first time ever in my new house, and I was very excited to get a Helix mattress for it. I already bought a non-Helix mattress for myself, so I thought I'd be giving my guests a treat. But now... I have a problem because I tried out the Helix mattress and I love it and I want it for myself. I have a great excuse to move it into my bedroom though, because it is customized to me. It's a Sunset Lux designed for side sleepers who like a soft mattress. I know it's for me because Helix has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Why would you buy a mattress made for someone else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you know will be perfect for the way you sleep. Everyone's unique and Helix knows that. So they have several different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattresses great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. Mattresses great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains. And even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-sized sleepers. If you're looking for a mattress, take the quiz, order the mattress you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door shipped for free. You will never need to go to a mattress store again. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. Helix has been recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving sleep. Just go to helix.com slash friends, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they will match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up if you don't love it, but you will. I guess they probably won't move it to a different room. Anyway, Helix has financing options and flexible payment plans, so a great night's sleep is never far away. 
Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash friends. That's $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows at helixsleep.com slash friends. With friends like these is brought to you by Smalls. Give your feline friend protein-packed meals that they'll crave with Smalls. Smalls is a fresh human-grade food for cats delivered right to your doorstep so you too can embrace your inner house cat. All cats are obligate carnivores. They need fresh protein-packed meals. And conventional cat food is made with profits in mind, using low-quality, cheap meat byproducts, grains, and starches coated in artificial flavors. Smalls, on the other paw, is made with cats in mind. Now, my ex got custody of the cats. So I gifted my subscription to Smalls to my neighbor, who has a senior kitty that now loves Smalls. I've seen for myself that her cat has a softer coat, and she has informed me of less stinky poos, which sounds kind of miraculous. And honestly, that alone should get you interested in Smalls. Smalls puts your cat's needs first, formulating recipes with leading cat nutritionists. And I don't know about you, but whenever I say the phrase cat nutritionists, I think of kitties in little lab coats, like sampling shrimp and stuff. But I'm sure they're humans in lab coats creating these great, perfect protein-packed meals for cats. Those cat nutritionists develop complete and balanced recipes for all stages of life. Starting with human-grade ingredients like you or I would find at the market, Small's recipes are gently cooked to lock in protein, vitamins, minerals, and moisture. No room for fillers, no need for flavoring. Better quality ingredients means a better, healthier life for your cat. Since switching to Small's, cats have experienced improved digestion and a less smelly litter box, softer and shinier coats, plus better breath. Go to smalls.com slash friends to take a short quiz and use code friends to get $5 off your first order. That's smalls.com slash friends, code friends to get $5 off your first order. So we're both sober, uh, both out about that. Um, both got sober in Minneapolis also. Uh, totally. Know some of the same folks. Now, I don't have as much time as you do. And you talk about it a lot. But this is like a sober person to a sober person question, kind of. Yeah. Uh, you have more time than I do, uh, quite a bit. But um, I've, I've been doing it for a while. Uh, and I've been blessed, and I do mean literally blessed, that I don't think much about drugs and alcohol anymore. Right? Like, that's not the problem for me in my life. <laughs> I, I mean, you know what I mean. I'm, like, I'm, la- I, I'm laughing only because I, I am my problem yes. right now. I'm not worried about <laughs> drinking today, right. but I'm petrified when I walk out the door in my office, I might be an asshole to someone I care about. That is really close to the answer that I, I was wondering about, because like sometimes what I tell people is that it's been relatively easy for me to put drinking drugs down, but I relapse on self-hatred and self-pity mm. all the time. Those are the bottles that I reach for. What do you relapse on? Uh, I relapse. Uh, my, my big one is uh, telling myself scary stories, which is a, you know, probably the thing that I, I have to focus on the most during the day. And I use a very quick four or five second mindfulness exercise that when I'm telling myself scary stories, I, I can get rid of them. Uh, with very short bursts of intense centering, uh, saying, leave my head bad thought three times in a row and imagining a train leaving a, a 
19th century train station. I don't have to get on that train with that bad thought. I could just watch it go away. And I've trained my brain to do that. And it, and it really, really does help. The majority of places where those uh, uh, bad, scary stories come from are things that threaten my comfort or will require more hard work. And that gets into, and the reason being is that I feel I've done enough, right? Which is not true. And I also forget that everything good in my life has always come from those moments of challenge, from doing the hard work. So I should actually be welcoming those kind of challenges in my life because they always lead to a betterment of my situation, surroundings, people I care about, myself personally, and then I make less mistakes in that area. But I have these, these fear-based thoughts around certain things that I hold so dearly. Uh, I do a lot of bargaining with my higher power. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's my favorite one. Like, you know, I just, uh, you know, I'm a dad, you know, so, uh, you know, I, you know, and codependency is an issue for me. It's like, I will own, I'm, I joke with friends all the time. I've had to stop doing it where I say, I'm only as happy as my least happy child right? Be because it puts so much emphasis and pressure on them, right? I need to just accept wherever, you know, my child is at um, and do what I can uh, for him and with him and let him have his own experience. And that is so difficult for me. It's difficult for me at work. Um, but I think the biggest thing that I, I relapse on is instant asshole to make myself feel good. Um, and it doesn't mean I'm like, oh God, I feel crappy. Let me go yell at someone. That's, that's not what happens. It's the snarky little comment. It's the, it's the, you know, it's the little jab here and there with someone instead of trying to be, you know, caring, kind, compassionate, patient, tolerant, and understanding with the people in my workplace, the same way I would if someone you know, is a first timer at a meeting or DMs me. I, I, I had two people who I, I only made a suggestion to online. Uh, they slid into my DMs on Instagram and they asked a question and I said, here's the number for intergroup in your play, blah, blah, blah. Go tell your truth at a meeting and ask for help. One celebrated four years yesterday. One celebrated one year yesterday. And they texted me to thank me, et cetera, et cetera. And I had done nothing. All I had done was spent five seconds leading someone I didn't know in a direction that I had some experience in, but I did it with kindness and with love. And, I, and I'm like, I did that for a stranger. It took five seconds. Why can't I do that more and more and more every single day with the people that are actually around me and be mindful about that? Uh, it's the thing that I struggle with. And, you know, it's... I mean, look, I'm just a garden variety, you know, low bottom New York City garbage head. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I wish that, you know, my I'll tell you, I, I when I was two years sober, I went to this uh, national uh, international AA conference and uh, Mel B, who was a friend of Bill's. He was very old at the time, but he'd written a book called New Wine. And it was his 60th uh, birthday, the night that he was speaking at this conference. And his wife came out and gave him his 60-year medallion. And as is the tradition in recovery rooms, a lot, especially old school, you, you talk about how you, what you learned that year. And 
Mel before he spoke. He said, well, I'm going to tell you my story, et cetera, et cetera. But I really think I, more so in, in this last year than any other, I finally learned to love unconditionally. And then he put it down. And the rest of it. And I turned to my best friend, who was also a year uh, sober at the time. And I looked at him and I said, well, that's great. So in 59 years, we have that going for us, you know, and it, all those things are not on our timetable. We just have to, they, it can come at any point. Some people get it five years sober. I I've learned, I just have to put in the work. It, it it's not that it becomes harder to put in the work, the longer that you've been sober. It's just that you, it's why I try to keep it greed. It's why I still go to meetings. It's why I still sponsor guys. It's why I still do all the stuff that I do. Because if I don't keep it fresh, I lose that perspective on the desperate straits I'm in. Yeah. I, I came into recovery, you know, one, two, three. I, you know, physically I put down the bottle. I was aware uh, that there, you know, was a solution for me. And then I developed a relationship with a power greater than myself. And that's helped me to, you know, stay sane and stay sober. I slide back. I know that I'll use again by going out three, two, one. I'll lose that spiritual connection. And then the stinking thinking comes in and then I'll act on it. So I try to stay really close to it um, these days. Um, and Zoom, by the way, uh, you talk about benefits of the, uh, the COVID era. I was able to go to meetings a hundred times a day if I wanted to. I, yeah. I got to go to meetings in other countries and other cities all around the world. I got to go to meetings with friends in LA on a regular basis for about six months before work picked up again. That was absolutely fantastic. And and I hope, I hope that technology, just to bring it full circle, kind of stays within the recovery world in a healthy way. And I also hope that it it helps us in our uh, our food world as well. We shouldn't be a we shouldn't be afraid of it. There are ways in which I'm not talking about billionaires in space. I'm talking about real science helping human beings. I'm really happy you brought up the work of recovery, you know, the ongoing work of it. Um, because I think I, you, the pandemic has also made recovery something that people are talking about more. It, it's usually been in a rather dark tone because there have been increases in overdoses, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, there has been increase in drinking. Yeah, uh, a lot of people also self-reporting problem drinking, and I feel a little bit like a Pollyanna sometimes <laughs> when I say no, no, this is actually just revealing things that already existed, and actually there are solutions to them as well. The solutions have already existed, right? It's it's fascinating though. There there is one. I I, I will I agree with you a thousand percent. I'll offer one friendly amendment because it, okay. it happened to me and, and I just find it fascinating. It hasn't happened since, but I had a sponsee who was, uh, got out of treatment in February, went into a halfway house and was starting his second month of sobriety in March of 2020. Mm -hmm. And so those first three, four months here in Minnesota, where everything was locked down, he's locked inside a house in his room with five, six other dudes in this uh, sober house, sorry, not halfway house. And some people were, you know, like always in really sobriety. There's some people breaking the rules and going in and out and people weren't wearing masks and deliveries had to come into the house and people had to go out to the supermarket. And every week there was a different person who they thought had COVID half the time they did. So then you were locked down in your room. You couldn't afford a laptop. People are trying to do zoom meetings on their phones. It was, it was, and by the way, 
he's plagued with the mind of a Mm -hmm. 60 day clean person, right. Which is bouncing all over the place. And, you know, ultimately a lot of those people stayed sober and just like it is all the rest of the time, a whole bunch did. But what was amazing, there was a really, really challenging time where you had to work a little harder. You couldn't just walk to a meeting. You couldn't get, I mean, he was, you know, luckily his, through some people, he found me as a sponsor, right? But he didn't, he was, he wasn't from around here. So he didn't know who was sober and he wasn't, it, it's hard to tell, like, you know, when Zoom meetings really were just, I'm talking about just starting, this was March. Um, he, he was, he was desperately trying to find the fellowship because he wasn't getting it with his peers in his house. And it was hard to, you know, I knew how to get it at Zoom meetings, but he didn't know how to get it. So I said, said, log on five minutes early, stay 15 minutes afterwards. I mean, it's the same kind of thing, but, you know, electronically, but you don't know what you don't know. It was fascinating to me. And, and I love the way that Zoom is, is staying or other things like Zoom are staying in many meetings that have gone back to meeting in person in certain places because it allows the world to connect to that sober group and i think ultimately it will be it will be beneficial more word is spread so to speak you know you have to take that one little step yourself it's an action step i I put an action step against every one of my character defense defects against every one of my fears my sponsor and i've had the same one for 30 years you know told me year one you can't think your way into right acting but you can act your way into right thinking And there's always been an action step, a doing of something that I can put against any problem that I write down on a piece of paper. And it it always does involve me doing something, (laughs) sometimes simple, sometimes complex, sometimes appearing to be hard. But once I do it, actually not that hard. And often new, often a thing you just haven't done before. Of course. And that makes it hard. Or a thing that you don't think anyone has done before. But, and that makes it, it hard. It, it's fascinating. One of my first uh, counselors in treatment, Mike Langan, he's deceased, so I can use his last name. Uh, one of the great heroes of, of Minnesota recovery, worked at Hazelden for 30 some odd years. But he was my counselor in my halfway house experience. And he pulled me into his office one day and he said, you are such a fucking mess. He said, all you want to do are things that you're already good at. You know, you don't take a, a, I mean, he was just screaming at me. He knew I was a New Yorker. So if used enough F-bombs, I would, I would, you know, I would maybe listen to him a little harder, but he, he really said, you need to do things that you've never done before. Try new things. It's okay to fail. It's okay to learn. You always need to be teachable. And he just hammered this at me. And so I picked up a couple of sports. That was the year I started playing disc golf and snowboarding. I still play disc golf all the time and snowboard. And I use those, that, that same mantra when, you know, as a, as a business person, you know, trying new things is how we learn. It's how we stay teachable. It's how we stay being newcomers at something. It's how we give ourselves some humility. I suck at some of the new things I try and people laugh at me. They're like, you're 60 years old. Why are you going to go do X, Y, or Z? And I'm like, cause it's really fun and it's new and I haven't done it before. You know, that's why. And, and I want my son to not be afraid of trying new things. I want other people who are listening to not be afraid of trying new things, exercise, new muscles. It's, it's, it's how human beings have survived for 40,000 years. 
Um, one of the new things that I've tried in the past couple of years is uh, uh, indoor rock climbing, bouldering. Oh, yeah. And I've, I'm good enough at it to enjoy it. That's what I'll say. Right. Like I can, I can, the easy route, I can climb up an easy route and that gives me a feeling of satisfaction and mm -hmm. great. But what is really inspiring to me about bouldering is actually something that I didn't do. I was, there's bouldering teams, I guess it, it, bouldering was in the Olympics this year. So mm -hmm. maybe people know you can, you can do competitive rock climbing. Right. But, uh, this place that I was at actually was the Minneapolis bouldering project. Uh, had their teen team, their like young adult team practicing. And it was, they, it, the instructor's like, okay, here's your problem. They call courses problems. Yeah, I can do it. And they all went through it. It was actually relatively easy. They're like young gazelles. They're just bouncing up, right? Crazy. And then the instructor says, now do it wrong. I want you to make a big mistake. I want you to climb this route the wrong way. And I was like, I almost started crying. Yeah, it's powerful. Because I was like, God damn, I wish someone had said that to me at some point. <laughs> I wish someone had told me to do it wrong once or twice. You know, the, the, by going the wrong route on a bouldering project, you then find yourself, I'll just say, dead-ended. And you have to either go back and try a new way or reach for a, 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 reach for a grip with your hand or your toe or jump. You know, and we can, it, 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 it requires faith. It requires resilience. It requires creative thinking. It's all of these things. It's, it is so relatable to personal wellness and fulfillment and, and personal growth, whether it's, whether you're an addict or an alcoholic or not, it is, it is a beautiful metaphor for what we do. My sponsor always called that. If you, if you want to, if you want to go over here all the way left, you may have to start by going all the way right. You know, it's it's that sailing metaphor of tacking back and forth. You can't necessarily always go in a straight line. There's a thousand of them, but it really is it it really is true. I it's my mistakes, even the ones that I make today, uh, that allow me to make great strides in what I'm doing over the course of my life. So we have been doing a little bit of perhaps recovery inside baseball, talking about the the, the how it is part rather than how it was or mm -hmm. how we get started. And talking about the work of recovery, I suspect that you and I might have this in common. So when we talk about the work you have to do, we talk about doing the hard thing. We talk about um, putting in uh, the time of discomfort, being willing to, to have that discomfort. I at least made a mistake in early sobriety thinking that that meant I had to work work hmm. all the time. I don't know if you know what I mean, but like, oh, I yeah. thought I needed to get an A in AA. <laughs> of course. Who doesn't? Right. And I thought that, well, if the solution to all my problems was to take another uh, job, right? Mm -hmm. To take another writing assignment. And it took me a while to realize that what is actually uncomfortable for me sometimes is to not do anything. Yep. <laughs> Thousand percent. I, uh, I dove into work when I was six months sober. Um in a way I've never worked before in my life until the, until I was 13 years sober and got in, more seriously into TV where there was another burst of work. And both of those times took away focus on other things. And I suffered serious, serious consequences in my life. Um, huge upheavals. Um, 
I was not able to put in all the work most recently career-wise and, and have my marriage survive. Um, that, that, those, those decisions have reverberations in my life that if I had to do it all over again, I would probably, uh, I'd like to think that I would say, no, I'm not going to do 32 episodes a year. I'll do 24 but the the money was seductive. the The fame was. I mean, I'm just being honest. It was like you know, I, I started to have a hit show. I'm on the Jay Leno show. I mean, stuff is going. I'd never experienced that before. Boy, am I lucky that happened at 12, 13, 14 years sober, and not at two years sober. I would have. I would have used for sure. I mean, I just feel. I, I just would not have been able to handle it. I didn't have the skill set. I barely survived it uh, as it was. Um, Overworking things and doing too much has always been uh, what I thought was a solution for myself because it was more comfortable than focusing on the on the stuff that I had to do. I made a list the other day. Someone texted me, a, a new friend in LA, actually. Uh, I was just texting uh, with them. And I said, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm glad, you know, I'm practicing avoidance or something. And this person is has no idea what avoidance means. And they said, Oh, what do you mean? And I said, Oh, there's, you know, I'm sitting here texting with you and there's like eight or nine things I really need to focus on. I said, I'm not trying to get off the the text. This is a nice to catch up for five minutes. I said, but it's, these are the kind of things I do. So I, and she goes, well, what are the things that you're avoiding? And they were just asking. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And I said, you know something, I'm going to make a list. And I made a list and texted it back to them. And once it's written on paper, I'd forgotten my own advice. I would say this to any young person I'm mentoring in recovery, write it down, write it down. Once you write it down, it's, it, there's, there's no escaping it. I mean, you can throw it in the garbage, but then you know what you're doing. You're throwing it in the garbage. And I actually, the very next day did item number one. And then I skipped a day yesterday. I did item number two. And it's amazing what that sort of micro journaling and stuff will do. Uh, I will do work that makes me look busy in avoidance of the things that I should be doing. And sometimes some of the things I should be doing is doing nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've had a ping pong table in my garage for 19 months. And I keep saying, I'm going to invite a couple friends over and ask me to move it downstairs. I have friends at my house frequently where I could just move it downstairs, but I don't do it. It's the weirdest, weird. Why am I afraid of this fucking ping pong table? But it's a metaphor for my life. I've realized it's a metaphor for my life. I get stuck in the weirdest places and it's, it's actually talking about them that gets me unstuck. Are you going to go move it that table now? Like I think I am. That's, that's why I'm, that's why I'm, <laughs> I'm going to send you, I'm going to text you a picture of uh, me and my little ping pong. I'm sort of in a ping pong outfit right now. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm ready to go play some Wes Anderson style ping pong. Right. Well, I will let you go play some ping pong. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you so much for your time. Oh, no, it's been absolutely, it's, it's my pleasure. You know, uh, it's been a long time coming. You know how, how much I care about you as a friend. Mm-hmm. And it's great to see your face and great to talk to you and great to talk to your audience. So have a wonderful, wonderful. If I don't see you before up here, I'll see you in uh, March in Austin. Yeah, the South by Southwest might actually happen. Right? It might actually happen. I'm going to be down there for like a week. 
A big thank you to Andrew Zimmern. You can catch his new show, Family Dinner, on the Magnolia Network and find episodes of What's Eating America, including a special on addiction on msnbc.com. This show is a product of Crooked Media. Leslie Martin is our producer. Patrick Antonetti is our audio editor. And please take care of yourselves. <laughs>